We're continuing our series, The Servant King, uh, and the passage today is from Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with him, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk clothes, cloth on an, in an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one no puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins, but new wine is for fresh wine skins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not, which it is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again he entered the synagogue 
and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, It is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill. But they were silent, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Well, hey, good morning. Um, about 12 years ago, when my family and I moved here, we moved from Iowa City. And uh, as I was working at this local coffee shop, I expressed my fandom for the Hawkeyes. And uh, it was a bunch of Badger fans. And uh, what commenced was a little bit of disdain, right? Uh, myself towards them and vice versa. But there was one thing that we could all agree on. There was one time in which both of us would cheer for each other's teams, and that was when they faced the Ohio State Buckeyes. That was clear. We would be frenemies when it comes to that. Well, as we continue our series in the Gospel of Mark, the last verse of what was just read, listen to what happens. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. The Pharisees, they were the conservative, moral tribe of the day. They rooted themselves in the Hebrew Scriptures. The Herodians, they were the ones that were upholding the political power of the day. The Herodians were the ones that were advancing Greek culture, which many times and often stood opposed to the conservative moral tribe of the day. They didn't like each other. They were opposed to each other, and yet they found a common enemy, and it was Jesus. This is remarkable, and here's why. Because it says something about Jesus and the kingdom he brings, that it subverts religion, and it subverts irreligion. And actually, these five narratives begin with hostility, and it increases every step of the way until it gets to this point. And here's, here's why. Keller summarizes it just brilliantly. He says this, Jesus has not come to reform religion. Jesus came to end religion and replace it with himself. And here's why that's important. If you're not a Christian this morning, you have perhaps thought that Christianity was a religion. And you may have thought it's like any other religion. And therefore, you can just kind of cast it aside. You may want to reject it or pass it by. But can I just submit to you? If that's what you think of it, you haven't actually met Jesus. But also if you're a Christian, and there's a lot of things we could say about this, I'll just put it this way. If you have a compartmentalized, safe, manageable Jesus, 
there's more to Jesus than that. One pastor put it this way, who has more? The one who has Jesus and also has something else? Or the one who deprived of everything else has Jesus alone? Which one has more? Jesus comes with his kingdom. It's deeply subversive. It is meant to do something no matter where you are this morning. But it's good. And there are four ways that Jesus identifies himself in this passage that ends religion and replaces it with himself. First, we're going to see Jesus as a forgiver. Secondly, that Jesus is a physician. Thirdly, that Jesus is a bridegroom. And fourthly, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray and we'll get in. Father, we pray today that you would, in some measure, by your Spirit, have your way with us. That you would, in the best possible way, subvert our notions of you and replace them with yourself. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, firstly, Jesus is a forgiver. You know, we catch up with Jesus in Capernaum. He's teaching. The room is packed, and no one can get in. And as he's teaching, uh, I can just imagine it'd be like if, you know, dust started to drop down from here, and all of a sudden light began to emerge because there's people above him who have ripped open the roof. And they drop down this paralytic man in front of Jesus. And Jesus, look at how he responds in verse 5. He says this, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're at all awake this morning, let's be clear. Jesus, are you really seeing the situation clearly here? It's a paralytic in front of you. And yet you're you're saying, what? Your sins are forgiven? What's happening? Here's what's happening. Jesus is telling this man, and he's telling us, that the primary problem in your life is sin. How does that land on you? You know, um, are you offended? Uh, you know, Especially in Madison, it sounds very foolish. It sounds very uneducated. It sounds kind of simple, even offensive. Uh, David Martin, uh, talking about like, what it's like in the modern culture today, he, he writes this about the, the modern view. He says, evil tends to be seen as exogenous, outside factors, as brought on by society, history, patriarchy, capitalism, the system in one form or another. In other words, the Netflix show you watch, the social media you, you consume. It all says the primary problem in the world is outside of you. And don't you see, Jesus says, actually, no. The primary problem is inside of you. Now, let me be clear. The Bible does not say that there are not problems outside of us. The Bible does say that. Read Genesis. But rather, Jesus says the primary problem is inside of us. Uh, just imagine for a moment, this last week, right, the Nord Stream pipeline got somehow sabotaged. I don't know what happened, right? But, you know, it, it, it basically let out what is potentially the largest methane amount of gas into the atmosphere. And, of course, that brings with it the complexity of our environment and what's going to happen, right? Could you imagine if 
the world got together a number of scientists and they said, we're going to work on this, solve this. And they began to come up with solutions and how this is going to affect the environment. And we would say, that's great. But they didn't deal with the leak. They didn't fix the pipeline. We would say, you are ridiculous. You see, do you understand what's happening here? Jesus, there's something far more corrosive in one another, far more, far more problematic. And Jesus says, I've come actually to deal with your greatest need. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Uh, there it is, Jesus is a forgiver. Now, here's what, now there's a problem with that. The religious leaders, they, they question their hearts. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? They get it. Jesus, what gives you the right? What gives you the right to say you're forgiven? You know, let's say, for example, you've got two siblings, right? There's three of you, and your two siblings get in a fight. And, uh, you know, it, it gets, they say some things that are just awful, even gets physical at some point. And after the, it's broken up, you come in, and you look at the younger sibling, you say, hey, brother, your sins are forgiven. Now, why is that a problem? Because you weren't in the fight, right? It's between these two. And see, that's the issue here. When Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, what has Jesus just done? He has just said to the perilic man, you've sinned against me. He has just made the claim that he's God. I can forgive because I'm God. And Jesus understands this. Jesus, you know, he, in verse 9, he says this. He says, which is, which is harder? Excuse me, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? And of course, Jesus, right, he says, son, get up and, and take your mat and go home. He demonstrates. He can do that. But actually, it's a lot harder to forgive. And we know that, right? We know that because you have to deal with the offense. Any judge who just lets someone off the hook, they're off the stand. But see, this is where all of this, this text is moving. This is why at the end, Jesus goes to the cross. This is why he goes to the cross, to pay for the sin, to deal with the justice. And that's why he can say, son, your sins are forgiven, Listen, Jesus is very disruptive. And here's why. Because for some of us, if we're honest, in the world today, we think the main problem is that group over there. That's what we think. It's them. Or others think, it's not that group, it's that system. That's the main problem. And let me tell you what, the reason why there is so much self-righteousness in our society is because we are so clear about that, but we are so ignorant about what is really deep, deep inside each one of us. Jesus will confront you with what is the very depth of the problem in this world. That it's vertical, and that vertical problem affects everything else. Listen, other us, um, we don't have a problem knowing that we're a problem in the world. Um, 
a lot of us, if we're honest, we don't like ourselves. Some of us even say things like this. I know God can forgive, but I can't forgive myself. But do you know what that is? That's pride as well. It's masked in self-pity. It is as if you're saying, I am the Supreme Court justice in this cosmic world, and I can't forgive myself, and God's lower court ruling doesn't stand against my verdict. But won't you see Jesus? He's the forgiver. He's saying, will you come to him by faith? Offering his forgiveness freely. As we'll see, at the cost of himself. This is the king he is. This is the kind of king he is. This is the kind of kingdom he brings. But secondly, Jesus is a physician. Uh, Look at verses 15 and 16. And as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclined with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is in trouble again with, with the religious leaders of the day because he's just called Levi, a tax collector. Uh, if you were here in August, you heard a lot of different sermons on tax collectors, but to summarize uh, what a tax collector was, it's a modern-day loan shark mixed with a religious apostate and then as well mixed with a national traitor. You were working for the man. This was the worst of the worst of the society. And there Jesus is eating with them. And the disciples are like, hey, wait, hold on. I'm sorry, not disciples. The, the Pharisees are like, wait, hold on. Like, how can you do that? Because in religion, the righteous are in and the unrighteous are out. And therefore, you separate yourself from the unrighteous. And look at what Jesus responds with in verse 17. His answer to why he eats with the likes of these people. He says this, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Jesus saying there? One author put it this way. He's not saying that some people don't need him, but rather, everyone is sick, but there are some that actually realize their need for Jesus to heal them. Listen, some people think that they can heal themselves through advice and morals. And Jesus says, actually, everyone is sick. The question is, will you go to the doctor? There's, um, in C.S. Lewis's book, The Voyage of the Don Treader, there's a boy, Eustace. Uh, Eustace is despised. He's selfish. He's mean. He's hated by everyone. And he hates everyone. And they end up on this island. <clears throat> and Eustace wanders off, finds a cave with a treasure, And as he's there, he begins to think about what he's going to do with his treasure. He begins to think about how he's going to be able to use all of this treasure to pay back everyone who has been cruel to him. And he falls asleep, and he wakes up, and guess what? He's become a dragon. It was a dragon's lair. And the reason why he became a dragon is because of all the thoughts he had. And he realizes 
because he's now a dragon, he won't be able to go back on the ship. He's going to be here left alone. And then, as he's really down, Aslan, the great lion appears. And he leads Eustace to a pool of water and tells him, undress and jump in. And Eustace realizes he's going to have to take off the skin. And so he begins to tear. He works really hard. He gets one layer off and he's really pleased, but then he realizes, oh no, there's still more. He continues to work and there's more and there's more. Layer after layer. And then Aslan says this, you're going to have to let me go deeper. And later on, Eustace, recalling what happens, says this, I was afraid of his claws, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought I had gone right into my heart. And when he began to pull the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And he pulled the beastly stuff right off, and there it was lying on the grass. Then he caught hold of me, and he threw me into the water, it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. And then I saw I turn into a boy again. You see, religion says you only need advice to change yourself. Jesus says you need me. I'm a healer, I'm a physician to bring your sin sickness to me. Uh, let me ask you, have you ever showed up at one of our city groups and wondered, I don't really know if I should share about this week. I don't know what everybody else would think about that. Uh, are we a religious community? Or how about this? Have you ever thought this when you're about hanging out with somebody who, who perhaps is not a Christian and maybe you see... Um, how they treat you or they treat others. And you're like, man, they would, man, before I would ever invite them to church or before I'd ever invite them into my house, man, that some, something would have to change. But Jesus, what does he do? He welcomes all to the table. One of my pastor friends puts it this way, Jesus, at Jesus' table, Shame is starved, and grace is served. I wonder, I wonder what that would do to our community if that was the case. So Jesus is a forgiver, and Jesus is a physician, he heals, but Jesus is a bridegroom. And this is another controversy that breaks out around fasting, John's disciples, if you remember John the Baptist, his disciples, they fasted. And the religious leaders looking at Jesus' disciples and they say, hey, you guys are eating all the time. Why don't you fast? And, and look at how Jesus responds in verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Uh, put it this way, <laughs> When was the last time you went to a wedding and the menu was this? Water. Uh, that never happens, right? 
We all know we do to wedding. There's got to be great food. An open bar is wonderful, right? It's wonderful when there's festivity and there's joy. And that's what Jesus is saying. But do you realize also what he's saying? Jesus identifies himself as the bridegroom. In other words, he's saying, because I'm here, we're not going to fast. Like, I'm the center of joy. I'm the center of the party. I'm here. And then he says in verse 20 that actually he's going to be gone, and then they'll fast. But, you know, I'm here. Why, why would we be sad? I'm the point. You know, later on, Jesus will talk about, there's a... Um, he uses the other image of sewing a piece of unshrunk cloth in an old garment or new wine into old wineskins. In both cases, it doesn't work out. The wine just, you know, gets out. And Jesus is saying this, listen, John's disciples, their practices were oriented to preparation for the coming kingdom. They were preparing for it. And Jesus is like, it's here. And therefore, all those forms are passing away. Jesus comes to subvert, disrupt the old forms because he's here. Now, there's a lot of things that could be said here, but let me get to the center of it. I think this is what it is. Let me ask you this. When was the last experience that you had that brought you joy? I mean, think for a moment. Maybe it was yesterday, a wonderful October day in Madison with, I mean, just beautiful. I hope you went outside. I went disc golfing. It was wonderful. I enjoyed that so much. Others of you might be like, you know, I enjoy a really good, uh, good meal at a local restaurant. Or maybe it's simply watching your kids play. Or maybe it was the last time you got together with some really good friends and just had an evening together. Do you know what that is? Those are moments of joy that are gifts. But they're not the source you know, the older I get, the older I get, the more you realize how much life is moving on. And you realize the things you found joy in before all of a sudden are different than the ones now. And you're grateful for the ones that you had, but then you're also going, where's my next round? All of those things you experience that are perhaps moments of joy, do you realize those are drops in the ocean of which Psalm 16 says about God, in your presence there is fullness of joy. Oh my. Do you understand what that's saying? When Jesus says he's the bridegroom, he's saying he's the center for which you were made. He's the only source of true lasting joy. Listen, if that sounds strange to you, then perhaps you've been considering Christianity as a religion and not actually understanding what Jesus is after here. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's the, he's the one we were built for, where true joy, lasting joy, is found. Lastly, Jesus identifies himself as Lord. You know, the final two encounters are about the Sabbath. Uh, the first one, the disciples are walking through grain fields, right? And they're plucking heads of grain. The second is there's a man with a shriveled hand. 
And uh, in both these situations, <clears throat> there were traditional rules. The, the, the Pharisees had set up 39 different things you could not do on the Sabbath. So you wouldn't break the Sabbath, they fenced it. And one of them was reaping, which was, they would say, if you're pulling you know, grain, you're breaking the Sabbath. The second was healing. And it was okay to heal if it was life or death. But of course, right, Jesus, what does he do? He says, I'm not going to follow your rules. He doesn't. He's not going to follow these rules. He's going to heal. They're going to have their, their grain. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. At one point, Jesus looks at the religious leaders. And this is when he has the, the man with shriveled hands stand up. He says, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or do evil, to save life or to kill? And it says the leaders remain silent. And it says Jesus looked at them. And listen to Jesus' emotion. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. We're in a conundrum right now. And here's what it is. Jesus, do you not care about the law? Do you not care about rules? It seems like it. You know what's fascinating? At the end of Mark 3, Jesus actually says this. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Apparently, he does care about law, the law. So which is it, Jesus? Well, here's what's going on. Religion, when it approaches the law of God, here's how it approaches the law of God. You see it as a way to make yourself right with God. And therefore, you have to know all the rules. You have to make sure you check the list. But what Jesus offers, his kingdom, this gospel, is far different. It says you can actually be fully accepted. You can, be, you can know the love of God. It is upon you, and it's only through Jesus, faith in him. And because you know that, therefore, in response to that, you order your life accordingly in obedience. And here's the interesting part. Those two can look very similar on the outside, but what's working on the inside is completely different. Uh, Keller tells a story of preaching a sermon at his first church in Hopewell, Virginia on loving your neighbor as yourself. And, and he, he explained it this way. His main point was this. I think God's saying, I want you to meet the needs of other people with all the joy, all the eagerness, of all the urgency, of all the ingenuity, creativity, and industry with which you meet your own needs. That's the standard. That's how I want you to live your life. And after the service, a teenage girl came up to him, and she said, okay, hold on a second here. I just got last in the homecoming pageant, and my friend won it. And she goes, are you telling me that I should be as happy for her as I would have been for myself if I had won? And Keller said, yeah, it's a good application. And she responded this way, Christianity is ridiculous. Who lives like that? Which, by the way, if you're a teenager and you have questions about a text, come up, let's talk. You know, this is, I love that. And they had a further discussion. And the girl began to ask this, well, who's my neighbor? It can't be everybody in the world. What number of square blocks does this cover? And Keller noted, here's the deal, she's anxious. And why is she anxious? 
because she was not awash in the love and acceptance of God through Jesus. You see, for her, the purpose of the law was to assure that she was a good person and that everybody else would see her as a good person. That's why she wanted to know all the rules. But the gospel is different. It does not mean the law of God is not binding, but now it functions completely differently. It means you obey, but not to earn, but in response to the radical mercy and grace and kindness of God in Christ. Keller writes this, he says this this way, it means you study and obey it in order to discover the kind of life you should live in order to please and resemble the one who created and redeemed you, delivering you from the consequences of sin. And Jesus in chapter 2, 28, he says he's Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, this Sabbath is something that I rule and that I reign. It means this. On the one hand, we ought to obey it, but we ought to do good on it on this day. We ought to understand that this is actually the day in which we sit down and we orient our lives to the scriptures. That we understand that we are in a vast story that is being written. And if we do not take a day to sit and rest in this, we will be restless. We will follow our noses other directions. In other words, Jesus is trying to say, this is the day that I want to give you true rest So Jesus is a forgiver. He's a physician. He's a bridegroom. And he's Lord. And the Herodians and the Pharisees are plotting. Now do you see why? Because Jesus is a threat to all they know. How about you? You know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer the German Lutheran pastor, martyr, in the Second World War, earlier in his pastorate, he looked out at a congregation. And as he knew them, he knew that, that Christianity for them had been exiled to simply Sunday morning. In other words, just a couple hours on Sunday. In fact, he would say that's actually how the rise of Nazism actually, actually happened in their midst. And this is what he wrote, and this is what he said to his congregation. He said, one admires Christ according to aesthetic categories, as an aesthetic genius, calls him the greatest ethicist. One admires his going to his death as a heroic sacrifice for his ideas. Only one thing one doesn't do is take him seriously. That is, one doesn't bring the center of his or her own life into contact with the claim of Christ. I can doubtless live with or without Jesus as a religious genius, as an ethicist, as a gentleman, just as, after all, I can live also without Plato or Kant. Should, however, there be something in Christ that claims my life entirely with a full seriousness, then Christ has not only relative but absolute urgent significance for me. Bonhoeffer was simply trying to make the claim that if you've really met Jesus, neutrality is not an option. Somebody says, if you're not a Christian this morning, 
Do you understand that Jesus comes to subvert your irreligious way of living? If Jesus is who he says he is, you cannot live how you want to live anymore. But let me also say this. If you're a religious person and you're lost, Jesus comes to subvert the paradigm that says that you can live a good life, that you can save yourself through a good works. He subverts that as well. And that's why the Herodians and the Pharisees are planning to destroy Jesus, because they get it. I hope you get it. You see, as I continue to read the Gospel of Mark, week after week, Jesus just keeps on getting bigger. Like, he... I want, to, I want to size him up. I want to manage him. But he just keeps on getting bigger. I can't manage him. He can't be on the margins of my life. He can't be safe and manageable. But that's the best news. Because that means that he can forgive. That really means that we can come to him with our sin sickness that we can live vulnerably in a community and be known. And that ought to be okay if Jesus is at the center of it. It means that of all the places I run to for joy, it means that in some way or another, Christ is the end of that. And therefore, because he isn't here in one way or another, there's reason to fast but I often find my life is pretty full. And are you restless? Do you understand if Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? You know what that means? Then your rest is not found in your phone. That means your rest is not found in your life being all managed. But true rest is found in Him and Him alone. He is the one who gives it. Let's pray. So Father, we come today and we thank You for Your Son, Jesus. Jesus, would You appropriately disrupt us? Would you shape us by who you are? Would you not, not enable us to hold you at a distance? But would you give us grace to receive you as you are and to see you as you are? That that would transform us. We pray this in your name. Amen.